0: Your Bibles to Proverbs chapter three. Proverbs chapter three. We're going to be finishing up this chapter, moving into chapter four in our next study. While you're turning there, let me just review a bit what we've been looking at in our study of Proverbs. The overall theme is to be wise enough to know you're not what? Wise enough. Now that's not just a clever slogan. Think about it. If you're wise enough to know that you're not wise enough, that should set you on a trajectory for gaining wisdom. The ability to navigate life with spiritually informed common sense at one level, but divinely sanctioned holiness over worldliness. Making the right decisions. All of life is really a matter of a series of choices. You've made so many choices even since you've sat down when you came in the building. Proverbs is designed to make you understand that there are choices to be made and how to make them. Let me read this passage. And what we're going to talk about tonight is the issue of delayed gratification. And that's found in how this passage climaxes in verse 35. Just read along as I begin in verse 31. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted, the wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. That last phrase, that last verse, really anchors our, our, our uh, propositional idea of this text, which is the wise will inherit honor, that's in the future, the fools display dishonor in the present. This passage really talks about and causes us to look at the issue of delayed gratification. Now, I don't know if you've uh, studied this in college, maybe you've heard about it. It's a very famous experiment that was done in the uh, late 60s by a Stanford University psychology researcher, Michael Michelle. It was called the Marshmallow Experiment. A couple of you are nodding, not, you remember this. The study began with a group of children, four years old. The psychologist offered them one marshmallow immediately, but instead, if they could wait for him to return a little later, they could have two marshmallows. So you get the experiment, right? I can give you one right now, and you can have it needed, or if you'll wait, I'll come back, and instead of having the one now, you can have two when I come back. Children within then wait, demonstrate, if or if not, they had delayed They could delay gratification, control their impulses, and it would show whether their inclination was to look to the future or to the present. Well, as you'd expect, some of the children took the one marshmallow and the other children decided to wait and receive two marshmallows an hour later. Fourteen years later. So now these little kids have grown up to be 18 The simple study demonstrated the significant differences between the two groups of children. They followed them along. The children who delayed gratification with those marshmallows until Dr. Michelle's return were more positive, persistent when they faced life difficulties, more self-motivated, were able to delay immediate gratification in order to pursue their long-term goals. The children who chose the one marshmallow didn't fare so well. They were more indecisive, they mistrusted others they had a lack of self confidence and a lack of self control they were more troubled in school and in general they were more obviously unable to delay their immediate desire for gratification it went on comparing the sat scores of the one marshmallow students and the two marshmallow students how would you like that to be your designation for life It showed that the students that chose one marshmallow, get this, scored an average of 210 points lower than the two marshmallow students. Why? The two marshmallow students were able to sacrifice immediate activities and desires in the interest of more focused time to study. The one marshmallow students were far more impulsive, resulting in higher distractions and less focus on their schoolwork. They fell into the Kind of the, the idea that, hey, let's go out and play because you can always study later. Lack of impulse control proved to be decisive in how they turned out on their test scores. You know, if we were look at, looking at that honestly, that, that idea, that general principle that God has put in the creative order of delayed gratification has large and looming implications on our lives if you have a lack of self control you'll have a, apparently according to the study they had less successful marriages the one marshmallow students did low job satisfaction some had bad health and overall they were frustrated with their life let me ask you a question it's not a trick question would you rather have $2000 or $40000 What if I told you that you could have the $2,000 today and walk out and spend it any way you wanted? Or if you invested it in eight years, that $2,000 would be a booming stock and you would have $40,000. Which would you take? We could go on and make it even more practical and maybe convicting. A body that's in shape works well and it works better than one that's not in shape or overweight, what if I told you that in order to get in shape, in order to enjoy your life more, watch the genius of this. You would have to do something you don't like, which is exercise, and suspend what you do like, which is eating junk food. Well, that's called delayed gratification. It's simply the ability to put off short-term minimal gain for long-term maximum Pleasure and gain. I hope you understand the principle of delayed gratification is at the heart of the gospel. You understand when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? What would you take now as the pleasure principle of your life in exchange for an eternity with Christ? Well, this little psychology experiment is interesting But Solomon actually inscripturates the same principles here in the verses before us. In order to kind of wrap our minds around this, if you want an outline, we're going to have five comparisons that should ensure delayed gratifications. Five comparisons. Five comparisons that should ensure delayed gratification. In other words, you will be gratified, but it will be later. We're going to make these comparisons by asking questions that I think these individual verses they're all couplets the one side the other side the one side the other side in these five little comparisons the first comparison is number one would you rather be wicked or righteous it seems like an obvious question to answer anyway would you rather be wicked or righteous verse 31 do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways I think if you were to interview any honest believer and were you to be interviewed by any other believer who wanted an honest answer, I think all of us would confess to having been at one point or another jealous or envious of the way unbelievers seem to get the best out of life. I was a new Christian, um, junior in high school, didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Uh, I had a wonderful youth pastor who was discipling me and so thankful for his input and influence in my life. A group of us went to Florida to um, uh, have a, a spring break vacation. And while there, some of the guys I was with decided to make some decisions that, that were the opposite of what I should have made. I remember watching them go out to have fun, to party, and staying in the hotel And feeling like the ship of pleasure had sailed and I was left on a desert island. Now, I'd like to tell you that this was some great virtuous story. But as they left and I was sitting there alone in the hotel room, I remember being completely envious of the fun they were going to have. That's what's being spoken of here. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. This word for violence doesn't just mean you're a, a, some kind of axe murderer. It means that you enjoy putting other people down for your gain. That's the violence. You, you take advantage of people. It can be verbal, it could be physical, it could be uh, beating people down with your, your argumentation. Think about it for a moment. Almost everything believers try not to do is what unbelievers what, what a believer tries not to do is what brings pleasure to most unbelievers. Illicit sex, intoxication, revenge, cheating to take a shortcut, saying what you want to inflict the most damage. But Solomon says here to his son Rehoboam, and he says to us as well, that there is no profit in being bad. Can you just let that sink in for a minute? There is no profit in being bad. And following the influence or the example of a man of violence, it says here. Man of violence, someone controlled by impulses, someone controlled by temper. They do what they want, when they want, how they want to. Solomon says to his son, don't choose any of his ways. In other words, don't imitate any of his behavior. Why? Well, it's tempting to follow the crowd. It's tempting to follow their behavior. By the way, do you hear when Solomon is talking to us, the father-son element, the parenting influence of these kinds of, not just points of advice, but nuggets of divine instruction? they appear to be getting the best out of life. When life is defined according to natural impulses, it's true. They are getting the best out of life. However, Psalm 37, 1, Psalm of David, do not, be, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart Envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Proverbs twenty four one. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Proverbs twenty four nineteen. Do not fret because of evil doers, or be envious of the wicked. The question that's being raised here is: Do you would you rather be wicked, or would you rather be righteous? Just sneak a peek down at verse thirty two. The devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. What do you want? Do you want to be wicked or do you want to be righteous? I, I think that's a simple question that we don't ask nearly often enough. We kind of dully, insensitively walk through life without seeing that the decisions we're making are decisive. We're choosing a righteous path or a wicked path. We're choosing to be envious of people who get to enjoy the sin that our natural impulses desire so much to enjoy, rather than seeing that there's a greater reward for what God has planned for those who trust Him and believe His promises for the future. That leads us to verse 32. Number two, number one, would you rather be wicked or righteous? Number two, would you rather be hated or loved? Would you rather be hated or loved? You can put in parentheses, by God. (laughs) Verse 32, for the devious, this is the same group of people, these people who are pursuing their sin that the believer can easily be envious of. The devious are an abomination to the Lord, something he hates, but he is intimate with the upright. The phrase abomination to the Lord is used 11 times in the book of Proverbs. It describes God's attitude towards certain categories and demonstrations, manifestations of evil conduct. Devious is someone who connives, who schemes, who plans evil, who plans immorality, who plans to cheat, who plans to get away with sin. No one ever gets away with sin. Oh, there may be a short-term enjoyment of it, but it's payday with the Lord someday. The abominations here are anything morally repulsive, simply uh, immorality in any form. If you trace this through the book of Proverbs, you'll find that um, the abominations of the Lord are devious actions like we see here in 332, also in 1120. Stealing is an abomination to the Lord. It's not just... Stealing something that is a possession that you can, a tangible commodity, but it's also stealing ideas. It's cheating. Stealing is an abomination to the Lord. False religion, chapter 15, verse 8, is an abomination to the Lord. Evil actions are an abomination to the Lord, verses chapter 15, verse 9, and 17, verse 15. Lying is an abomination to the Lord. He hates lying, chapter 12, verse 22. And pride, chapter 16, verse 5, is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination means something he detests, something he hates. If you want to be hated by the Lord, pursue these things. Now, we could get into the the deep kind of theological quagmire if you want to address it briefly. The devious, these are these people, are an abomination to the Lord. Notice it doesn't say their actions. It says them, which raises the whole question, uh, does God really just hate the sin and love the sinner? Well, of course he hates the sin, but does he love every sinner? In the providence of his, his ability to see from the beginning to the end of time, we read in the Psalm, Psalm 5, over and over and over that the Lord casts hatred toward those who hate him. Now, the good news is anyone is offered the appeal of the gospel to believe and repent and then find the second half of this verse. But, instead of being on the hated side, but he is intimate, loving intimate with the upright. He's intimate. Literally, he's secret. He has a a special place of meeting, a secret place to meet. With the upright. He takes the godly into his confidence. They are insiders with him. God hates the one and loves the other. Remember Romans chapter 9 Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And at one level, we can't unscramble that egg, but we do know that God says he loved the world and whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life in John three sixteen. So instead of being weighted down with that theology, let God be God and let the Bible say what it says and just know that he loves those who love him and exercises a hatred which will manifest in hell one day for those who are an abomination to him. And he sorts that out and he offers salvation to those who believe. To go any further than that is dangerous, but not to go that far is also dangerous. It's related to delaying gratification. According to God's blessing, the future is best for those who wait for God's blessings in the fullest sense. He doesn't give all of his full blessings right now. I think that one of the, one of the worst misnomers about Christianity, one of the worst subtle ideas that people may give when they share the gospel is that if you'll believe the gospel, your life just gets completely fixed and better right now. Don't we all wish that were the case? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes your life and your circumstances actually get worse. I think of Thomas Cramer and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. We were in our church history tour last year and we stood on a cross in the road where these men were burned at the stake because of what they believed and promised if they would deny Christ, they could go free. They understood to be intimate with the Lord meant to postpone gratification until heaven, until later. Now footnote, does that mean that God doesn't give us gratification right now? No. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. If anyone should enjoy this planet and its, its pleasures inside the covers of your Bible, it ought to be a Christian. We see them as blessings. I love my wife. I love my sons. I think I would if I were an unbeliever, but I have a special love for them because I understand them as a blessing from God that an unbeliever doesn't have. You can boil it down to, remember when we studied Ecclesiastes, and I'm not being tried, a Krispy Kreme donut. A Christian can eat a donut like that that's warm off the belt and they give it to you when you're standing in line and you can say, this is amazing. It melts in my mouth. God gave me taste buds to enjoy every part of this. The texture, the sweetness. What a God who gave us the ability to do that. We can glorify God in our pleasures. But the greatest pleasure we have The greatest pleasure we have is in this verse is the intimacy we share with God. We're an insider. We're his friend, no longer his enemy. We're not in the abomination category. Would you rather be hated or loved by God? A third question. Would you rather be cursed or blessed? These seem like obvious questions, but they're not so obvious that they didn't need to be reinforced to Rehoboam by Solomon. Would you rather be cursed or blessed? Verse 33. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling or the house of the righteous. The concept of blessing and cursing here is is really interesting. It's laid out in terms of your house, your dwelling, your, your building in which you live. The point is that your choice of godliness, our choice of Pursuing God's way or wickedness, worldliness, has a dramatic and graphic influence on your dwelling, on your family, on your roommates, on the people that you live with. You know, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Old Testament is in Exodus 34, where it says, I will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. Remember that verse in Exodus 34? And people say, well, there you are. You have generational curses. That's not what it's talking about at all. He's saying that sometimes in that context, there will be two or three, up to four generations living under the same roof. And when one person sinned, it brought the consequences of that sin into the entire dwelling. Let me give you a practical application of this. There was a man that uh, I was uh, part of a counseling team with in California several years ago who was involved in a pretty serious drug ring. He was gloriously saved Confessed his crimes and his sin to the police and went away to prison for seven years. His going away, his sin had radical effects on his household, on his children, on his wife. Sin is never isolated only to the mind or the life of the sinner, it has impact, it has influence. Why? Because the curse of the Lord, verse 33, is on the house of the wicked. Now, you might be saying, and we're going to get here in a minute, well, what if if it looks like they're getting away with it all? Well, they won't eventually. There's an old phrase, he will have hell to pay. That's actually a true statement for those who reject the gospel and pursue their own interests, their own sin at the expense of delaying gratification for eternity with God in heaven in the future. You become the fountain for God to bless you. In the last part of this verse, he blesses those, the dwelling rather, of the righteous. This is an amazing comparison and parallel. In the same way that someone's sin can influence The place they live and the the family members, so can a redeemed soul influence the house, whether there are other believers there or not. Remember 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says to the wife who has an unbelieving husband that she can win her husband without a word. He has the grace of God in his house because of her influence. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. You know, it raises the question, what kind of person are we to live with? What kind of person are we to live with? Curse on one, blessing on the other. Curse and the blessing right against each other in this little parallel in verse 33. Number four, fourth question. And I think these are intended to be really fast staccato, uh, the way they're, they're paralleled in, in the original Number four, would you rather be rejected or accepted? Would you rather be accepted or rejected or accepted? Verse 34. Though he, that is God, scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. Psalm 2 said, he laughs at the nations who rage against him. Ultimately, those who choose a worldly, unrighteous path end up scoffing at or mocking God and his standards. It's most often targeted by mocking believers and our standards. You've been, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably been called all sorts of things by family members, by, by acquaintances, by friends, by work associates. You're a goody two-shoes. You're a holier-than-thou. You're, you're a self-righteous That's just because they look at our life and instead of being attracted to who who we're trying to please, they mock us. Well, God says he will scoff at those people who mock, who scoff. In the end, God will turn and mock them in judgment. Not in a sinful way, but in a way that says you are now getting what you deserve in the judgment. The verse gives insight into the target of the scoffing of the scoffers. It's the afflicted. It's those who are afflicted or mocked or scoffed at by the scoffers. How do we know that? Look at the last phrase. He gives grace to the afflicted. When you look at the antecedent, how those are modifying each other, it's very clear that those who are afflicted are being afflicted by those who are scoffing. They're making fun of our faith. They're making fun of our standards. They're making fun of our God. But God gives grace to those who get mocked, who are abused, afflicted, ridiculed, persecuted for their right standing and their stand for righteousness. James 4, 6, such a sweet passage. God gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble, or the afflicted. 1 Peter 5, 5. You younger men, Peter says, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We said this morning in our fellowship hour or Sunday school hour that sin is worse than affliction. And sometimes it's easy to forget. Sin is worse than affliction. Think about what ultimately suffering and affliction could land us, where it could land us. Where's that? Heaven. You know, I, I, I struggle sometimes when we, we look at each other's lives as believers and try to do all we can to alleviate suffering. God is very clear that more often than not, He grants us, He gifts us, He graces us, graces us with suffering because it brings us closer to Him. Can I ask you just an honest question? When you're in the middle of a trial versus when everything is going right, when is your prayer life better? When are you drawn to the Lord and the Word? When are you anxious to be with Christ? Boy, I, I shudder to think of how often we try to get out of what God has put us into. I've told you before, one of the most dramatic illustrations of this was one of my best friends in high school. We played baseball together. We, we did a lot of things together. And uh, Greg Hudgens, who is now with Christ, when he had a headache that wouldn't go away, went to see the doctor. Kim and I were living in Detroit at the time. Didn't look good. He asked me if I would fly down and be with him. I was there when the doctor told his family that he had a very aggressive terminal form of brain cancer. And one of the most dramatic moments in my life, one of the sweetest, sweetest blessings in my life was the next day, he was finally kind of clear thinking and out from under the amnesia after this brain surgery where they tried to extract as much of this tumor as they could, but I'll never forget the doctor's description. The, the tumor had fingered down into his, his brain. His head was bandaged up and he asked Michelle, his wife, just to give us a few minutes. I had to fly out that afternoon and he says, Rick, God is in control of everything, Right? Now, remember, I'm the the theologian. I'm the the trained seminary grad, right? I'm supposed to have answers for this. And I felt completely, completely inadequate. He says, Is God in control? Is God in control of everything? I knew where he was going. I said, Well, yes, Greg. That's the only answer. He is. He was sitting up in his bed, and he says, Is God in control? of the cancer cells in my brain? What would you say? I said, Greg, (laughs) yes, he is. And he laid his head back on the pillow. Tears began to stream down his face and he smiled and said, then this is okay. Then this is okay. Do you understand the power of delayed gratification, even if you're mocked and scoffed at and your affliction rises to the level of a suffering. It's overwhelming. That leads us to the fifth comparison that should ensure delayed gratification. Would you rather be wicked or righteous? Would you rather be hated or loved? Would you rather be cursed or blessed? Would you rather be rejected or accepted? And then fifthly, would you rather be honored or disgraced? Would you rather be honored or disgraced? This is the ultimate look down the corridors of time into eternity to see how life ends. The wise, there's our word again, the one who's wise enough to know you're not wise enough, the humble man who's pursuing wisdom, the humble woman who is passionate about becoming more wise, the wise will inherit honor. That's a future tense. But fools, present tense, display dishonor. Do you see the the comparison there, the antinomy? It's where the concept of delayed gratification really comes into spiritual focus, takes full shape. Back to the central contrast between the wise and the foolish, which Solomon has been talking about since chapter one. The person who... Violates human relationships, will in the end lose his relationship with God. Notice this time he begins with the positive, it ends with the negative. Had just the opposite before. The wise will inherit honor and the antecedent here is from God been talking about God is the one who's the judge, the one who scoffs at the scoffers. The wise will inherit from God honor, but fools, that's the opposite of someone who's wise. We've studied the fool over and over in Proverbs. It's the one who chooses his or her own way against the Lord's revealed way. It's really simple. The fool will display, displays now, dishonor. Can we take just a little field trip together? Turn back to Psalm 34 for just a minute. I'm going to show you two passages that bring, I think, this section in Proverbs into living color. They illustrate it very well. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I I can never read that without remembering that was the verse I used in my engagement. And she said yes. Thank you, Kim. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces will, will never be ashamed the poor man cried and the lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles and the angel encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them oh taste and see that the lord is good how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him oh fear the lord you his saints for those who fear him are there is no lack no want The young lions do suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Can you just underline verse 10 in your heart? Those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. Lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He hears; his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves. Those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not a one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It's a very clear admonition from David that says, if you seek the Lord, you're gonna be blessed. Those who don't, won't be. Psalm 73, a passage we've looked at before, but we can't look at this passage without reflecting on this Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. You know why? I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. (laughs) There are no pains in their death and their, their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high; they they've set their mind against the heavens. Their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore His people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Does God know what these people are doing and what they're getting away with and how they're enjoying it? Is God even aware of the prosperity of the wicked? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. You ever felt like that? <laughs> Have you ever felt like, this is in vain. I'm missing out. Why am I trying to be so pure and suspend immediate gratification for a future gratification? Why am I doing that? Why am I doing this? Washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I constantly feel the pain of other sinners of sinners getting away with their sin and enjoying it. I'm the one left out. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until. Until. It was troublesome in my sight Until, verse 17, until, until, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. How this is going to end for them. Surely you've set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. There's death, there's judgment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused. You will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless, I was was ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. You see the late gratification right there? It's glory where he's looking to have all things resolved. And then he ends with this famous text with which most of you are familiar. Who, who do I have? Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's how you gain delayed gratification. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart, the portion of my heart forever, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, listen to this, the nearness of God, that's my good. That's where I find my pleasure. That's where I find my treasure. I have made the Lord God, my safe place, my treasure. Many people think that this is an illusion maybe to that famous Fort Masada so that I may tell of all your works. You know, Asaph, Asaph, I hope you can identify with Asaph. He's looking around and he's lost his perspective. He's looking at the world and saying they look like they're having more fun, getting more joy out of this planet and I'm missing out. In vain, I've kept my heart pure, he says. Why am I trying to do this? Well, because the nearness of God, the nearness of God is our good. Divine judgment in its simplest form is raising up of the righteous and putting down of the wicked. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to give you the New Testament parallel to this admonition by Solomon. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The idea of delayed gratification, looking at the pleasures of this world versus the pleasures of eternity. Paul says, verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4:16, therefore, We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, stop right there. That used to seem like such a far fetched idea when I was 18. It's funny to see who's smiling at that and those who are looking around like, what? I feel fine. No, I. Outer man is decaying. I feel it in the morning. When you put your feet on the ground and your ankles hurt, and your knees remind you that you were an athlete, and your hips need to be oiled like the Tin Man, and your eyes need a shower. It just, and then you're, then you start getting medication. Then you start getting these things to fix things that are going wrong. And read Ecclesiastes 12. The longer you live, God has not designed us to end with our best days physically. We're we're decaying. Paul recognized that. Yet, that's the outer man. The inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light, affliction. Stop right there. Do you understand what Paul was dealing with? Read 2 Corinthians 11. Shipwrecked, beaten, times without number, ostracized, chased down, and ultimately he would be executed. And he calls that momentary light. Affliction is producing for us an eternal weight, that's comparing to the momentary, of glory far beyond all. I love this comparison. We are called to compare. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's delayed gratification. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're gonna pass away. But, and here's the delayed gratification verse. The things which are not seen are eternal. Is heaven worth the weight? You know, one of the reasons I love reading my Bible is it reminds me that heaven is worth Saying no to sin about, heaven is worth the wait. He will be there. We will see him as he is. Sin will be gone. Troubles and trials will be in the past. (laughs) And the momentary light affliction will be gone. Anytime anyone says, well, yeah, but Paul doesn't have it as bad as I do, just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He had it physically, he had it emotionally, he had it psychologically, he had it spiritually. He was attacked by people, he was attacked by demons. He had men like Demas who he poured his life into, who turned on him in the end. He says it's momentary, it's light. But this momentary light affliction is causing me to have an eternal weight of glory. Remember, be careful what you and I call bad things and suffering. Because often they are a pathway that God uses to bring us into greater maturity. And ultimately, one of those afflictions will be what He uses to bring us into His presence. So as we turn to our time at the Lord's table, I want to encourage you that for tonight, let's think about this. Let's think about ways in which we envy the wicked, ways in which we press on the temporal expectations that can only be answered in the eternal. Let's find those sins, identify them, confess them, and repent of them. All the while doing what Paul instructs us, which is to remember the Lord's death until he comes. All the while looking for the coming of the Lord. I was, I was just thinking about this uh, this week. Embarrassing, if I can just embarrass myself. I, 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 I just thought, I haven't thought about the Lord's return in a while. I was really convicted. When did you think, when was the last time you thought Jesus might come back tonight? And that would be wonderful. Jesus' return as a wonderful reality is only wonderful if we consider it better than any pleasure we would compare it to on this earth. That's part of the Communion exercise is to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again.